I want to start just with a question, and that is, what is the biggest problem of man? What is the biggest problem of man? What would you, how would you answer that question? <laughs> sin. Sin is the most obvious and typical answer, but I submit to you that there is a problem that is even bigger than sin. It's actually, I believe, the origination. It's where sin comes from. It's where sin finds its roots. It's where sin finds its source. And that is rebellion. We talk about the sin nature, but the sin nature is simply another way of saying the rebellious heart of man. If not for rebellion, sin would not be a problem. You don't sin against one that you follow or bow to or or long to be with or, or love. Rebellion drives sin. And we're all guilty. So what then, if that's the case, if rebellion, if a rebellious heart, a sinful nature is what drives sin, what is the antidote to rebellion? Uh, Huh? Submission? Obedience? I submit to you that the answer is worship. I think that worship is what we need. Worship is probably the single most powerful thing that can happen or that we can do to drive us from rebellion and into the arms of our Father. Worship. From the very beginning, God's made one thing crystal clear, that we were created by Him and for Him. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. Like it or not. Now, the only reason you wouldn't like it, again, comes from that rebellious nature. Well, I don't know if I want to only be for Him. I don't know if I only want to be about God. I have other things that are important to me, too. And the Lord says, hey, this is the deal. Paul says in Romans 11.36, For from Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And if you can't accept that, you're going to have a hard time with Revelation chapter 4 and 5. For these two chapters, if they show us anything, they show us that a right relationship with the Lord is prepared and preserved by worship. It is all about worship. The moment John sets foot into this throne room, worship is what's happening. John begins to recognize, and we read through this last week and a little bit the week before, John recognizes the primary activity in the throne room of heaven is worship. And it's non-stop. In fact, you'll see a little bit later that day and night they do not cease. This is 24-7. Worship, worship, worship. Why? Because it quells rebellion. It's interesting to me. I think in Christianity, the less we worship, the more easily our rebellion tends to rise. It's very hard to sin when worship is on our mind. Because worship puts God at the center of things, whereas rebellion puts me at the center of things. That's why when people say to me, and they've said, I'm just not into worshiping. The worship is not the part that I... I like the teaching. And there are those who show up just for teaching... And I hope that in their showing up for teaching, ultimately they'll realize that it's not just about the teaching. But when people say that, I cringe. I cringe. Because it's not about vocal ability, it's not about musical talent, it's not about how beautiful you can sound when you're worshiping. It's about Jesus as the centerpiece. Even if that makes me look foolish. Even if it makes me look a little strange in front of uh, people. Turn in your Bible to 2 Samuel as we begin tonight, in a familiar story, 2 Samuel chapter 6. If there was any one thing David understood in his life, and he had a life of rebellion and a life of sin like anyone else, and some could even say worse than, than most, David at least understood worship. He understood what it really meant to worship the Lord. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 through 23, we see the story of the Ark of the Covenant being brought back into Jerusalem. And David is leading the way. They had already tried before to bring the ark back. They brought it the wrong way. They put it up on a cart. God had already proclaimed earlier that it was never to be carried on a cart, but it was to be carried by the priests on poles. There were poles that were made for carrying the ark. And they put it on a cart, and they had a big old band playing, and they had a big rowdy show going on, and it was great, and they were celebrating until Uzzah, you may recall the story of Uzzah, touched the ark of the covenant and was struck dead. And at that point in time, David said, he was so shocked, he was so upset, we can't do anything about this, we're leaving the card here. They left it in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom. Well, Obed-Edom started having a really good time. His house, his family, his life began to be blessed in amazing ways. When David saw this, he got excited because he felt like the blessing of God had returned to the ark, and he said, let's bring it, let's bring it on into Jerusalem. 
And so in this story, as it goes, they did it the right way. They carried the ark. Every six steps, they stopped. Every six steps. And they offered a sacrifice. And as the ark came into Jerusalem, we're told in the Bible that David danced. Verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 6 tells us, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and he was wearing a linen ephod. And David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord, were shouting, and, and with the sound of the trumpet. And then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michael, the daughter of Saul, this was David's wife, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. She despised him. Why? He was an embarrassment to her. What a fool he is, dancing in front of all the people. This is not something that a king does. Dancing like this? Come on. Wearing a linen ephod? Where's your royal garb? Where's your, where's your crown? Where's all the stuff that makes you look like a king? Where's the royal pomp and, and the procession? Are you dancing like some common fool? Well, it tells us that uh, David, after distributing to the people all kinds of cakes of bread and dates and raisins, in verse 20 it says, David returned to bless his household. Now, you can imagine this scene. The ark is back. David has been worshipping with all his might, dancing, leaping, praising the Lord, caught up in the wonder, raptured in the moment of worship. And he returns to bless his household. He is beaming. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, verse 20, How the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants made as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Bam! Like being slapped in the face. You've just come out of a wonderful worship and someone comes up to you and goes, you know, you were lifting your hands this morning. It was a little embarrassing. Actually, it was kind of getting in the way. I couldn't really see the, the overhead projection there because you were standing up and that bothers me. I don't know why. You, you always get so into worship. I mean, it would be amazing if someone would actually say something like that. But can you imagine walking out of here on a Sunday morning and you're just, you're just feeling better than you felt all week because you've been worshiping and someone comes up and says something like that to you? So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father, by the way, and above all his house, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord, and I will be more lightly esteemed or undignified, as the song goes. I will be more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken... With them, I will be distinguished. And it tells us that Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David worshipped. Gang, the fear of looking foolish is on the same continuum as outright rebellion. It's one arm of the same plane. Outright rebellion to the Lord, I will have nothing to do with the Lord. And that fear of looking foolish before the Lord in worship, it's the same idea. One is an extreme of the other. That if I am afraid that my life and the worship of my life might make me look a little foolish, might make me look a little less upright, might make me look a little less righteous, you know, in the eyes of church people, it's rebellion. Because it's putting the focus right here instead of on the Lord where it belongs. My worship is to Him. It's always to Him. It is not about me. Which is why, again, I say the antidote to my rebellious sin nature is worship. Which, again, is why I believe the Lord keeps inviting us over and over and over in Scripture into His throne room. Think about this. What kind of a deity does this? Inviting humanity to sneak previews of His glorious throne. What other God invites man to look directly into heaven and yet our Lord has done it time and time again? There are five specific times in the Bible and if you're taking notes you can jot these down. Five times that God granted visions of his heavenly throne room. We said again this morning, five tends to be the number of grace in the Bible. And so God in his graciousness five different times leads man into the throne to see, to experience the worship that is going on there. Five times, and grace is also what we talked about last week. It's what emanates from the throne. The first time was Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Isaiah saw the Lord's throne. I'm just going to give you these. You can take note of them and jot them down and go back and look at them. They're fantastic. Each one carrying its own incredible story of what happens. Isaiah, by the way, when he saw the Lord, 
seated on the throne. He was so blown away, all he could do was fall down and say, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I don't deserve to see what I'm seeing. Ezekiel is the second one. In Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 1 through 28, and we're going to come back to that in a few moments. Ezekiel gazed into the wonders of heaven and saw things, and as he tries to describe them to us, they're almost incomprehensible. Absolutely amazing. Stephen, number three. Stephen saw the throne just as he was about to die. Acts 7.56 tells us. He looks up. And in that moment, as he's being pelted by stones, as he is about to die, he looks up. I see the Son of Man seated at the right hand on the throne of God. Paul, number four. Paul actually went to heaven and came back. Did you know that about the Apostle Paul? That he had a little visit, a throne room experience. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and I'll read this one to you, beginning in verse 2. Paul is writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, I know a man in Christ, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body, or apart from the body, again, I do not know, God knows, But such a man was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, Paul says, I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regard to my weakness. What is this about? Did Paul really go? Is he talking about himself? I'm absolutely convinced he was. Paul went to heaven. Paul saw things in heaven, experienced the throne room in what he says inexpressible ways he heard things said he couldn't even repeat some of this I believe simply because Paul was given such a wealth of information such a wealth of knowledge by the spirit to to teach the church in those early days but here are some other reasons why I think Paul actually died and went to heaven at that time it was exactly 14 years prior to the writing of 2 Corinthians that Paul was in a city called Lystra Acts chapter 14 tells the story. Paul had been stoned and assumed dead in the city of Lystra. And it said that the next day he he just got up and walked right back into the city. I think the reason why he walked right back into the city was twofold, two possibilities. One was what he saw in heaven was so absolutely amazing, so wonderful, he had to go back, he had to keep preaching. The other one was that what he saw was so wonderful drove him to want to go back, hoping they might stone him again so he could get back up there as fast as possible. He died. And in that death, he was caught up to the third heaven. Paul talks about, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven. What's the third heaven? The Bible teaches of three heavens. And Jewish understanding of the skies above us gives us or renders three heavens. The atmosphere around us, that which we breathe and see, and it's closer to us, what we breathe. And then beyond our atmosphere, into the stars, that would be the second heaven. Our atmosphere, the first heaven, the stars, the second heaven. And then where God dwells, the third heaven. That's how Jewish people would look at those three. And so Paul says, I know a man who was caught up to the third heaven, the place where God dwells, the place where God is. The vision was so stunning, not only again could Paul describe it, but it caused him to head right back into Lystra and to continue preaching on and on. And it's interesting that in Paul's case, he never spoke of this event, at least in writing. We don't see anything about it for 14 years. And even then, when he comes back to it, he calls it indescribable inexpressible well finally the fifth one of all these biblical revelations John is given the describable revelation that he receives from Jesus we go into chapters 4 and 5 into the throne room we get to see things and and experience things we wouldn't get to otherwise why? again because I believe God is preparing us to worship preparing us to experience worship preparing us for what is to come in the days ahead when we ourselves will be caught up into the third heaven. But God didn't just reveal this to individuals, these five cases that we talked about, five different men who at different times were caught up, actually saw heaven. No, it wasn't just to individuals, it was also to an entire group of people that God revealed the internal workings of his throne room. In fact, not just a people, Israel, is who I'm speaking about, but even us today. God laid out historically for us a shadow, a pattern of his actual throne room. Now, if you're familiar with this, you'll know what I'm talking about. But he placed this this pattern in the most unlikely of places, in, in a strange place, actually, a tent, 
a booth. In the Hebrew sukkah, we talked about this morning, the tabernacle. The tabernacle, you see, is the exact replication of the throne room in heaven. We see in the tabernacle what we see in the throne room of heaven. And I want you to see this tonight as we're in chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 3 tells us that every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. So it's necessary that this high priest, speaking of Jesus, have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. The pattern. You don't have a pattern of something that doesn't exist. You're given a pattern to show you how to make something look, how to make something, uh, how, to, how to express something. And when Paul's talking about the pattern, he's saying the tabernacle, it was patterned after something else. What's that, Paul? It was patterned after the throne room in heaven. A quick walkthrough. And you can go back and study this on your own if you want to look at Exodus chapters 25 through 30. It describes the tabernacle. Do a comparison. We'll do it very quickly tonight between that and chapter 4 of Revelation. One of the things talked about in Exodus 25 through 30 is the door. The door to the tabernacle. You may recall, if you went through this study, the door was woven. It was made of four different uh, colors of material. Blue and purple and scarlet and linen or white colors. And these colors all speak about Jesus. And it's a wonderful study you can do on your own. But Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 starts out with, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. The tabernacle door, the door standing open in heaven. But there were seven pieces of furniture that were in the tabernacle, placed inside. There was a bronze altar, a bronze laver, golden table of showbread, the golden lampstand, the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat. These seven different pieces of furniture that all stood in the tabernacle. Now stay with me here. Quickly we'll go through these. The bronze altar. The bronze altar on earth patterned after something else. It was where the sacrifices took place. Now if you look in Revelation chapter 4... You're not going to find the bronze altar anywhere. It doesn't exist in heaven. Why not? Because it's the place where the sacrifice took place. Where was that related to Jesus? It was at Calvary, the cross. So the bronze altar doesn't exist. The sacrifice was once and for all. It was taken care of. But the bronze altar in the tabernacle represented that ultimate sacrifice Jesus would pay on the cross. But the second thing is the bronze laver. The bronze labor, that's where the priests would go and they would do their ceremonial washings, that big brass bowl. But it was also called the bronze sea. The bronze sea. What did we see? The last thing we looked at last week before the throne. It was something, it was a sea of glass. So there before the throne is a sea. The sea. The bronze sea in the tabernacle, the sea before the throne, Revelation 4, 6, before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal, that sea of perfect calm. You may recall we talked about whether it's good things that are going on or bad things that are going on, good stress or bad stress, stress still tends to work you up, and yet with the Father there is perfect calm in that sea before the throne. Again and again and again, and again, the Lord calls us to slow down. To stop rushing. I've had some time to think about that this week, being flat on my back for a couple of days. And as I pondered it, I realized, you know, for all our technology, for all of the speed and the quickness with which we can do things in our culture and our society today, I'm really not sure we're accomplishing anything more than was accomplished 100 years ago. Or 200 years ago. I'm not sure in a day's time I can get any more done. And part of it is because I physically am not equipped to handle any more than, than what I can do in, in a matter of hours in a day. Give me all the technology in the world and I can't speed myself up any faster than a human being can go. And God keeps saying, would you slow down? Would you just slow down? Relax. Sabbath. Enter my rest, he says. So that sea of perfect calm, similar to the bronze label. Well, number three, in the, in the tabernacle was the golden table of showbread. Then you might look at Revelation 4 and 5 and say, well, I don't see a golden table of showbread. What's the deal there? Jesus said, John chapter 6, verse 48, I am the bread. 
You see, Jesus in the throne room, you are seeing the table of showbread, but the whole purpose of the table of showbread was to represent Christ, to give us that picture of Jesus. He went on and said, John 6, 49, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. But this is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Jesus is the bread of the presence. The fourth thing is the golden lampstand. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. We see the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. Revelation 4, 5 says, There were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so the lampstand in the tabernacle was this shadowy representation of the Holy Spirit. And, and don't forget this, we noted this last week, it also may be an indication of the church in heaven. For you remember in Revelation chapter 1 that the church is referred to as a lampstand. Or as the lampstand. As Jesus is moving among the lampstands, the lampstands being the church. Number five in the tabernacle was the golden altar of incense. The golden altar of incense. And that's a shadow, gang, it's a shadow of prayer. Incense, that picture of prayer. You might recall the closest that a priest could get to the Lord. Not the high priest, but a normal average everyday priest who worked in the tabernacle. The closest you could possibly get to God the Father was the, the uh, altar of incense. That was it. You come up to the altar of incense, you can't go any closer than that. Same thing for us as believers. You don't get any closer to God than you do in prayer. So when your life feels distant from the Lord, you feel detached, prayer is your key. Prayer is the answer to draw near to the Lord. So you might say, well, where's the altar of incense in heaven? Flip over to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8, we'll just look at these two verses. We'll spend quite a bit more time on this when we get to this chapter. But verse 3 of Revelation 8 tells us that an angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer with much incense given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God and out of the angel's hand. Verse 5 says, The angel took the censer and filled it with fire at the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning, an earthquake. Some people have read that and said, See, when you pray, things happen. Prayer causes things to happen, this response from heaven. Heaven responds to the prayers of the saints. But that golden altar of incense... Now, you might be saying at this point, Well, Rick, you really think that that there's an actual golden altar of incense in heaven? I mean, come on, this is just spiritual stuff, right? There's not a real one. Well, remember, the, the tabernacle was just the pattern, the shadow of that which was real. If you recall a couple weeks ago, we talked about that which was or is real. That there is a, a... an experience, not an experience. Heaven is more real than what we experience here on earth. More tangible. More intense. Beyond anything that we can imagine. So all these things, they're just shadowy pictures of the real thing in heaven. The golden altar of incense in heaven. So you think it's really there? Yeah, I really do. Because the Bible says it is and I'm simple-minded. The sixth thing is the Ark of the Covenant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 4. The Ark of the Covenant. This is in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And Hebrews 9.4 says the Ark of the Covenant was covered on all sides with gold. And in the Ark there was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. Now again, because there are other things I want to talk about, I won't go in depth into those. Also, we're going to be covering some stories in the book of Numbers coming up pretty shortly in the next couple or three months where we see where these things happen. The manna. The manna you know about. And the manna, they were told, take some of the manna, put it in the golden jar, and keep it in the Ark of the Covenant. So they did that. But what's this thing about Aaron's rod that budded? Rod that budded. What's the story there? That's a great story. People were coming up. There were some guys who kind of led a rebellion, rebellious hearts against the Lord. And in this rebellion, they said, well, who, who put Moses in charge? Why does Aaron get to be in charge? And so the Lord said, hey, we'll just do a little test here. Have them all bring their staff, their rod. And the rod that buds is the one that I say is in charge. And so Aaron's rod, whoop, budded. And God said, from here on out, I want you to keep that rod in the Ark of the Covenant. So they did that. The third thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant was the second set of commandments. Now, I want you to think about this. It's interesting. Those three items that are placed in the Ark of the Covenant serve two purposes. Number one, they reminded reminded Israel how faithful God was with the manna He provided. 
with Aaron's rod, he, he gave leadership. And, and with the Ten Commandments, he, he replaced that which was broken the first time. He gave them the law. But the reality is, it didn't just signify the faithfulness of God. Those three items inside the Ark of the Covenant served as a constant reminder of Israel's failure. Their utter failure. You could put it this way. The manna reminded them of the whining. The whining. Every time you think about the manna, they think about the fact that they kept whining for more. The manna wasn't enough. We need meat. Give us more meat, Lord. And so he gave them meat and they whined about that. We're sick of quail. He said, I'd tell you, you'd be sick of quail. In fact, the Lord says, it's a great story in Numbers. He said, you want meat? I'll give you meat till it's coming out your noses. I'll give you meat till you are absolutely bloated on meat. I'll give you meat. And he did. It was because of the whining. That manna would remind them. We're whiners in the wilderness. The budding rod reminded them of the blooming idiots. The guys who refused to take God's command at face value. They had to question it. That story is in Numbers chapter 17. And the second set of commandments reminded them that they couldn't keep the first set of commandments. And it wouldn't matter how many sets of commandments were made and remade by the Lord. They would still break them. They'd still break them. Exodus 34 told us that story. And so the ark, the ark, this beautiful, wonderful box that was at the center of all the worship, contained three reminders of abject human failure. But what was God's answer to their failure? It's what he placed on top of the ark. It's the mercy seat. The mercy seat. What what beautiful, amazing picture here. The portrait that God draws. I've got your failure and it's in the box, but on top of the box, I'm placing the mercy seat. Hebrews 9.5, above the ark, the cherubim of glory overshadowed the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat was crafted of pure gold. It sat atop the ark of the covenant and over and above the mercy seat were two cherubim, also crafted of pure gold. And once a year, you may recall that on the day of atonement, the high priest would come in, Yom Kippur, and he'd enter the Holy of Holies one time a year. He sprinkled the blood of atonement as a sacrifice for Israel. And it was there, it was there that the Lord said, I'll meet you. I'll fellowship with you. Exodus 25:22. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will meet you, the Lord says. So the mercy seat... By contrast, in Revelation chapter 4, chapter 4, is the throne. It is the seat. It is the throne of heaven itself. The mercy seat, just a representation, a shadowy picture on earth that we see in Revelation chapter 4 as the real thing, the throne on which the Father and the Son sit and give out mercy. It's there, by the way, that the raptured church will finally be taken to be before the Lord. And gang, there we will worship as we have never worshipped before. Take your top ten worship experiences of your life. They won't hold a candle to the worship you will experience and I will experience in heaven. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now the tabernacle, again, was a shadow, a shadow of the actual place of worship in heaven, and that's what we see as we get back now into Revelation chapter 4. God has gone to great lengths to bring us to the throne room, to prepare us for the throne room. He designed it, showed it to us in the tabernacle. He caused five different individuals across time to be caught up to see, to, to experience the throne room, to prepare us, to ready us. And now, with Revelation 4, John comes along and begins to write what he saw. Jesus said, I want them to see this. I want them to know. I want them to understand where they're going. I want them prepared to worship. Now, what was it that was above the mercy seat again? What sat on the mercy seat? Cherubim. Cherubim. So we should expect, if there, are mercy seat, if there are cherubim on the mercy seat in the tabernacle, we should expect to see cherubim above or around the throne in heaven. Correct? Well, we do. Verse 6, Revelation chapter 4. About halfway into that verse, it says, In the center, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. Verse 7 says, The first creature was like a lion. And the second creature like a calf. 
And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. Where? Amazing creatures. Now how do we know these creatures are cherubim? Hold on to that question for a moment. Let me tell you a little bit about cherubim from a biblical perspective. We know the first mention of cherubim is in the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3 verse 24 tells us that at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. That's the first time we see cherubim. So we see this word cherubim or stationed there. What's a cherubim? I don't know but God put them there. We learn more about the cherubim as we get down into Ezekiel. Ezekiel 28 verses 13 through 19 tell us oddly enough that Satan himself was a cherubim. A guardian cherub one who rebelled, that will tell you something about cherubim, that they have the will to rebel or to follow. They don't have to worship. It tells us in this description in Revelation that cherubim have eyes all around, all over the place. Eyes in front and eyes behind. What's that about? Well, these eyes, I believe, speak of outward vision, that they see everything. You can't pull the wool over their eyes because there are so many of them outward vision but it also speaks of inward insight that these creatures these cherubim are intelligent beings they see they know they want to know more than they know so they're not omniscient like God they want to know they want to learn I love this passage 1 Peter chapter 1 beginning in verse 10 it says as to your salvation the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries remember you go back to the days of the prophets we have the blessing of being at the end of time of having the whole scripture we can look back and see how it all worked out and came up to this point in time the prophets didn't have that all they had was the word that God gave them and they had to figure it out and so Peter says they work to, to understand. They make careful searches and inquiries. Seeking, verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 1, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven and then Peter adds these words things into which angels long to look you have the benefit I have the benefit of sitting here opening up the scripture and seeing and understanding things that the angels have wanted to understand for centuries for millennia looking down from heaven watching God's plan play out not knowing what was going to happen next or how God was going to fix that mess or that mess or why God was doing what he was doing the angels longing to understand this at the birth of Christ singing his praises at the death of Christ wondering why they didn't know until the resurrection happened and then the glory of that and finally beginning to understand something of grace you see the angels are watching you they can't figure out why we deserve grace they're looking at us and going, God, you've got to be kidding. All this for that? For why? And so they're trying to get a finger and get, get a handle on it, trying to understand grace. Things into which angels long to look. Well, these cherubim are smart, smart creatures. And they're looking. And they're understanding. And they're insightful. And they have four interesting faces four interesting faces John says again in verse 7 the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had a face like a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle so he's looking at these four creatures and, and I'll tell you why in a minute but he must have only had time to glance at them and not really see all that they were he must kind of glance there was so much going on in heaven and meanwhile you know John's got his pen and he's writing down everything and he's seeing and he's trying to follow all this going on and so he only got a glance but why would you say that? well again I'll tell you in just a second but let's go back to our question how do we know these creatures are cherubim? how do we really know? turning your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 1 This is just great. <laughs> this is something that, um, if you just want to freak out an unbelieving friend, take him to Ezekiel 1 and read it to him. They'll just go, what? what? I'd love to see a movie about this. 
Ezekiel chapter 1 and verse 1. I'll start reading. You catch up. It came about in the 30th year on the 5th day of the 4th month while I was by the river Chabar. Note that, the river Chabar, among the exiles. The heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth of the year, in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the river Chabar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon him. Verse 4 As I looked, behold, a storm, a storm wind was coming from the north, a great cloud with fire flashing forth continually, and a bright light around it. And in its midst something like a glowing metal in the midst of the fire. And within it there were figures resembling, watch this, four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had human form and each of them, mark this, each of them had four faces. They all had four faces. It wasn't four with four different faces. It's each one of them had four faces. So when John glanced up, he quickly caught four faces, but he didn't see them from the left side or the right side or the back side. If he had, he would have seen that there weren't just four faces. There were 16 faces up there. Interesting. goes on. It says they had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, were human hands. As for the faces and wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each went straight forward. As for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull on the left or a calf. And all four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above. Each one had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. And each went straight forward. I love this. Listen to this. Wherever the spirit was about to go, they would go. Without turning as they went. And Jesus says, The wind blows wherever it pleases. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And that's the life I want to live. A life that goes wherever the Spirit goes. But this still doesn't answer the question. Okay, they're interesting creatures. Four faces each. Sixteen faces in all. How do we know they're cherubim? Ezekiel chapter 10 verse 15 tells us, Then the cherubim rose up. They are the living beings that I saw by the river Shabar. So now Ezekiel calls them cherubim draws us back to chapter 1. So chapters 1 and 10 are the two chapters you really want to look at in Ezekiel to study these cherubim a little further. But he says the cherubim, that's what they were. They were cherubim that I saw by the river Chabar. And the cherubim all have four faces. Go back to Revelation chapter 4. Now this, this may seem bizarre to us. You know, just to listen to Ezekiel's description, we go, I'm not sure if my heart's ready for a heaven like that. That just sounds a little weird. It sounds almost, I don't know, icky. You know? Four faces on these guys. I mean, they're looking at you all the time. You can't talk behind their back because they're watching. And everywhere you go, they're looking at you. That's just weird. I don't understand that. It may seem bizarre to us now, but I guarantee when we get called up to heaven, it will be wonderful. We'll experience it in a new and different way. It's kind of like right now. If I want to really gross out my kids, and from time to time I do, I just start kissing their mom. Say, Cheryl, come here, and I'll start to kiss her, and, and I'll look over, and Corey's like, God, you know, ooh, you know, and Hannah's like, can you guys stop or use the S word? If you have teenagers, you know what I'm talking about, the S word that rhymes with X. And, and, and they just gross out. Ooh, don't talk about that. That's disgusting. You know, they, my kids have three kids. They believe that that's only happened three times in my married life. And I, you know, I tell them, no, 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 no. No. And they go, ugh. <laughs> disgusting. That's gross, Dad. But you know what? At some point in their lives, and I'm hoping it's much, much, much later, a little switch is going to flick on, and ooh will become ooh. Okay? And they will understand what they couldn't see. Something that is beautiful and wonderful in the context of marriage as God created it to be. They'll understand that affection between a husband and wife. But not now. Because they're not there. They don't get it. Same as us. We look at these cherubim and go, Ugh. But we're going to go, Ugh. 
Wow. Beautiful. Awesome. Amazing. This is a creation of God, by the way, that we have never seen, that we will get to see. And remember, earth is just the shadow, the substance. The substance is heaven. So why do these cherubim have four faces? Other than the fact that obviously God wanted them to. He created them that way. But is there more to it than that? I believe there is. And I'll give you two solid reasons. Number one is a gospel reason. A gospel reason. Early church teachers, men like Irenaeus and others, they saw, they taught that these four faces corresponded perfectly to the four gospels. Listen to this, it's great. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, describes, talks about Jesus the king. Jesus our king, the face of a lion, king of the forest. Mark, Jesus the servant. The book of Mark is all about Jesus and his servant nature, face of a calf, a beast of burden. One who serves. Luke is talk, talks about Jesus as the Son of Man. Jesus, the human face of a man. It's perfect. And John, John points us to the fullness of God. Jesus as deity. It's seen in the face of an eagle. So the four Gospels, the four faces. Matthew, the lion. Mark, the calf. Luke, the man. John, the eagle. And you might note that eagles soar higher than any other living creature. There's no other living creature created that flies higher than the eagle. The eagle is also the only one that can look directly into the sun without hurting his eyes, even as Jesus can look into the Father's glory. So an eagle looks into the sun. But I think there's something else really cool going on here. Now, some of you have heard this before. I've taught it a couple of different times in different settings, but it's, it's worth hearing again. And if you haven't heard it, it'll blow your mind. For there's not only a gospel reason that these four cherubim have four faces each. There is a tabernacle reason. A tabernacle reason. In the book of Numbers, chapters 1 and 2, again, we're going to get to this right after the first of the year, so I'll probably repeat it again then. But God declares something very interesting. He declares a specified order for the people of Israel to camp. The tabernacle is to be set up, and as they wandered through the wilderness, they first would set up the tabernacle, and then they would begin to pitch their tents and set up camp around the tabernacle, and this is the way that God wanted it done. And you can read about this in Numbers 1 and 2. Directly next to the tabernacle, on all four sides, would be the Levites. That's where they camped, that's where they pitched their tents, and those who, by the way, are serving the Lord, and don't miss this, those who are serving the Lord, always get to be closest to Him. If you want to be closer to the Lord, serve Him. It's the way to be closest to the heart of the tabernacle. Well, they were instructed then, the rest of the Israelites, not including the Levites, to camp in blocks, north, south, east, and west of the tabernacle, and this is how they did it. Three tribes made up one camp. Okay, remember, twelve tribes divided by three is four. So you have four different camps, four sides of the tabernacle, and three tribes were in each one of these four camps. Here are the camps. Number one was the camp of Judah. The camp of Judah. The camp of Judah involved Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon. And these three tribes all were one camp, and it made up 186,400 men. Again, you can read about this, check it in Numbers chapter 2. 186,400 men in Judah, Issachar, and Zebulon, but all together they were called the camp of Judah. And it's the largest camp. They were to camp east of the tabernacle. Tabernacle in the middle, camp of Judah, east. Straight out from the tabernacle in, in, tabernacle in a block. Secondly, to the west on the other side of the tabernacle was the camp of Ephraim. Camp of Ephraim made up Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Those three tribes, one camp, the camp of Ephraim. Camp of Ephraim was the smallest camp. There were 108,100 men in that camp. So again, east, camp of Judah. West, camp of Ephraim. Then you get, on the south side, the camp of Reuben, which was made up of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. There were 151,400 men in that camp. And north, and I know this is fascinating, north was the camp of Dan. The camp of Dan was made up of Dan, Naphtali, and Asher, and there was 157,600 men. So on the north side and on the south side of the tabernacle were pretty much equal-sized camps. 
On the east side was a large-sized camp, the largest of the camps, and on the west side was a smaller-sized camp. Now remember, as you think about this, if you can possibly picture this in your mind, we're not talking about circles. They didn't just start building their tents wherever they wanted to, randomly you know, scattered all around. They were in blocks. So you had the tabernacle. You had the smallest number to the top, to the west of the tabernacle, to the east of the tabernacle. You had the largest number. And then on either side you had an equal number. From a God's eye perspective, looking down on the tabernacle, you saw the cross. It formed a massive shape of a cross, which I still, every time I think about that, just gives me chills. How God planned this out and thought about it ahead of time. These organized blocks, 603,550 men, that doesn't include women and children, but they drew out in these camps a massive cross. Which means that even back then, 1,500 years before it happened, God was looking at the cross. God was thinking about the cross. He was considering the cross. Actually, we know he was considering the cross from before the foundations of the world, Revelation 13.8 tells us. But again, what does this have to do with the cherubim? That's neat that it makes a cross, but what is this tab? Why the four faces of the cherubim? Because each of these four camps also had a symbol connected to them. The symbol of Judah was the lion. The symbol of Ephraim was the ox. The symbol of Reuben was the man. And the symbol of Dan was the eagle. So on the four faces of the four cherubim were the four camps of Israel. Described in, in this way. The symbol of Judah. By the way, Jesus came out of Judah. He was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it's interesting to note that Judah camped on the east of the tabernacle, the eastern side. Why is that? Because the east, the east is the place from which Messiah will come. He will come into the eastern gate, we're told, in Jerusalem. It's called the Golden Gate, and right now it's, it's boarded up, it's blocked up, it's closed, it's been shut down. You can't go in and out of it. On the outside of it, there's a garbage dump. There are tombs out there. It's, it's basically a big mess. On the inside of it, I read recently that there are Muslim shrines all set up. Set up there specifically because of the biblical writings that say the biblical Messiah will come through that gate. And so they've done everything they can to defile the gate so no Messiah could come through. Between you and I, do you think that's going to keep Jesus from coming through that gate? <laughs> I don't think so. So even in the four faces of these created cherubim, God sees the four camps of Israel, the four points of the cross. And Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. Well, verse 8. Revelation 4, verse 8. Tells us the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings and are full of eyes around and within And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Holy. holy. Why three holy, holy, holies there? We sing the song, Holy, holy, holy. Why three of them? Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. And notice that the cherubim, they never stop. The literal rendering of this is they have no rest. Why? Why do the cherubim just keep worshipping and worshipping and worshipping? Are they compelled to? Do they have to? Is that all they're able to do? Listen, these are intelligent, insightful creatures. And they can't take their eyes off the Creator. They can't stop worshipping Jesus. They spend all their time perpetually doing one thing, worshipping. Is it because... They have to. No. We know. We look back and we see Satan making the choice to rebel against God. We know that a cherubim has free will. They are not automatons. They're not like great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Have you ever seen that? Disney's great moments with Mr. Lincoln? Some of you I've shared this story with, but I've got to tell it again. I took Corey, who was a real little kid at the time, six, seven years old, in to see great moments with Mr. Lincoln. Now, Cheryl thinks it's really cheesy. I love it. I tear up every time. You know, they got the Civil War background, and then Lincoln stands up and he begins to speak to you, you know, and he's very realistic. And I love it. So I love to try and go see that every time we go to Disneyland. Well, I finally talk her into letting me take Corey in there. It's first time, father and son. We're going to experience great moments with Mr. Lincoln together. We sit down in the chairs. And the music swells, and they have the little slideshow, and it's still playing. And Corey's doing pretty well. He's fidgeting a little bit. He's watching. And I know what's coming. You know, the, the curtains are going to part. The music will swell even louder. And Mr. Lincoln's going to stand up. It'll be perfect. We're going to have this moment together. 
and the music did swell, and the curtains spread apart, and there was Mr. Lincoln. <laughs> Literally standing up, bent over, and his finger was twitching. <laughs> and my son, for the first time, is seeing this, and someone from the back of the auditorium had the audacity to shout, He's been shot! So, the whole day was ruined for me. I came out of there and Cheryl heard that story and just thought it was great. So These are not automatons. When you think about angels worshiping in heaven, when you consider the cherubim, they are not up there going, praise the Lord, you know, heavens adore him, you know, breaking down and all that. That's not what they do. These insightful, intelligent creatures, gang, they're not intelligent because they worship God. They worship God because they're intelligent. Because they know that there's nothing better they can do with their time. There's no better way to spend your time than to remain in worship of the one who is on the throne. We don't get that here. We get to a certain point of worship on a Sunday morning and typically in most churches people are going, you know, what time is it? Did you make those reservations for lunch? Because you know, and and we we we've got to get out. We've got to leave. We we have other things to do. Not so in heaven. It will be a completely different thing. I remember hearing one time about a man who who uh, went to a really large church, and it was a, a large church by a, a, a couple of different military bases, and so they were real focused on the military and on the navy. And in their church, they, they, this massive church of several thousand people, they had on the walls of both sides of the sanctuary, they had these big banners. And the banners were hanging up there, and they were military banners. And so at, on one afternoon, it was a Saturday afternoon, a man was taking his son into the sanctuary for the first time, because his son had grown up in children's church, and now he was old enough that he could go into the sanctuary. So we wanted to take him in there and kind of give him the lay of the land, get him used to it, brings him in there. And he's pointing out the banners and he's showing you that's where the pastor preaches up there. And you don't go up on that stage and back there, that's where the choir sits. And you know, he's describing all these things and the kid was fascinated by the colorful banners. And he said, Dad, what are these banners for? And his dad said, well, those are, those are for all the people who have died in the service. And the boy said, well, which one? First service, second service, third service? See, our idea of worship, it's, it's lost their game. We don't understand what true worship is. But I warrant you that when we get to heaven, it's not this idea that, oh, all we're ever going to do is worship. I don't think we're ever going to want to do anything else. When we get a taste of real worship, we're not going to want a coffee break. We're not going to want to leave. We with the cherubim will sing and shout, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now verse 9 going on says, When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, and to Him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they will worship Him who lives forever and ever, and will, and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Twenty-four elders, this perpetual praise, the cherubim, they call out, they're worshiping, and every time they worship, well then the twenty-four elders fall down and they worship, and then the cherubim continue to worship, and the elders continue to worship, and around and around it goes, the worship never stops. The twenty-four elders, the twenty-four elders representing who? Who do the 24 elders represent? Twelve tribes of Israel and twelve apostles. Twelve tribes of Israel, twelve apostles, put them together. Who would that represent, total? It's the twelve tribes of Israel. It's all of his people. It's all of God's people. All together. The combined people of God, who I believe, and in fact, Sharon, you were the one who asked me this several years ago, um, do you think that the Old Testament saints will go in the rapture? I do. I do. Those who, the dead in Christ will rise. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, 17. The dead in Christ will rise first. All of those who died in faith in God, the Old Testament saints, will rise, I believe, first. And we will meet them together in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord, all of us together. Everybody who has had faith in the Lord, whether they died or were alive at the time of the rapture, and I believe the 24 elders are a picture of this. Now, interesting, these 24 elders, and there's more proof of that in chapter 5, which we'll get to next year. <laughs> but uh, they've all got crowns on their heads. All of the 24 elders are wearing these golden crowns. What's that all about? 
Watch this. Revelation chapter 22 verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Here comes Jesus with his bag of rewards, and in that bag I know at least five, five of the items that are in that bag. And they are five different crowns that Jesus will give out. Crowns that those who are worshiping the Lord before the throne will have to wear. Crowns that are based on different aspects of how you may have lived your Christian life. Listen to this. Number one, the first crown is the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future there is, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And you might say, well, great. So there's one crown of righteousness for Paul. Good for you, Paul. Well, he goes on to say, not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Who gets this crown? Anyone who has loved his appearing. Anyone who is longed for, anxious for his appearing, they get the crown of righteousness. This is one of the gifts that I believe Jesus will give. And why is it a crown of righteousness? Because, gang, those who are looking for Jesus' coming are nurturing righteousness in your life. You can't help it. Without even trying to be a more righteous or a more holy person, you will be sanctified more so as you watch for the approaching day. As you seek His coming. We've talked about this many times. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. Because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. So the person who loves His appearance, who longs for His coming. Jackie's going to have one of those crowns. Sharon's going to have one of those crowns. They're nuts about this stuff. Tracy, you're going to have one of those crowns. We're all going to have, because we, in fact, I will say every one of you, you're here tonight, a winter's night, Sunday night, in a barn, you're going to have a crown of righteousness. Amen. <laughs> you're thinking, I better have a crown of righteousness if you keep going on like this. The person who loves his appearing will be nurtured in righteousness and receive a crown that reflects that. The second crown is the crown of life. James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And again, people say, well, that's just a spiritual life thing. I don't think so. I think the Bible means what it says and says what it means. And James says, if you persevere under trial, once you've been approved, you will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. So who gets this crown? Those who persevere in love. Those who persevere in love. I was asked an interesting question this last week, and that's how do you how, let's see how did that question go? How do you deal with a Christian who is basically a Christian malcontent? How do you deal with a Christian who just has nothing but a negative word to say all the time? And, and my immediate reaction is, are there really Christians that have nothing but a negative? I mean, real Christians. I wonder if you're following Christ, you're not going to have a negative word to say all the time. But I'll tell you how you deal with people, any kind of people in your life who are a pain in the neck, who are hard to care about, who are unloving towards you, who have nothing but a nasty word for you. The way you deal with them is you love them. You love them. And you will receive a crown. So you can be telling yourself, okay, this person's a jerk. I'm going to love them anyway because I want that crown. <laughs> I'm working for the crown here. It's the crown of life. Why is it the crown of life? Because Jesus was all about life. John 10.10, 10, he said, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And gang, show me a person who loves Jesus with their life. And I'll show you a person who really knows how to live. How do you deal with anybody who's difficult in your life? Just love them. Just love them. The crown of life. The third crown is the crown of glory. The crown of glory. 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is a very specific crown. Peter writes, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, he says to the elders, Shepherd the flock of God among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Who gets this crown? Those who shepherd. 
the shepherds. That would be, could be elders in a church. It could be anyone who shepherds others, who leads others in ministry. And why do they get a crown of glory? Well, one way of looking at it is, again, who camped around closest to the tabernacle? It was the servants. It was the ministers. It was the priests. They were the closest to the glory of God, the Levites. They were the servants. And we've talked about this a lot in our elders' meetings, that to be an elder, we like to use a little e as opposed to a capital E because it's not a position. It is an act of service. It's a place of serving. And it's the servant who gets the glory. Jesus always put it, it's a topsy-turvy way of looking at things from our human perspective, but Jesus says, if you want to become greatest of all, you become servant of all. And the servant of all, that's the person who gets the crown of glory. Fourth crown, this is a good one, the crown of the soul winner. The crown of the soul winner. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul writes, Who is our hope, or our joy, or our crown of exultation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at His coming? Now you might say, hang on Rick, that, that's not really a crown, that's just people. Right? Paul's just drawing a picture of maybe you come into heaven and a group of people gather around you, circle around you, and they're thanking you for sharing Jesus with them. Exactly. A crown of the soul winner. Gathering around, people encircling you. Oh, to be surrounded by that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I, I wager that most of you have no idea how many people you've told about Jesus. You have no idea how many lives, in one way or another, subtly or otherwise, that you have touched for the Lord, and you're not going to know. This is wonderful, until you get to heaven. But in that time, I think there's going to be a big fellowship, and people are going to be going around grabbing the people who saved them. Well, Jesus saved them, His grace did. But grabbing the shoulder of someone and saying, Listen, you're the one. You're why I'm here. You're the one who spoke the words. You're the one who told me about Jesus. I found Jesus because you opened your mouth that one afternoon, that one morning, that one day by the water cooler, and you shared. You told me about it. Crown of the soul winner. And the fifth crown, the fifth crown, the hardest one I think for us to get, is the crown of the martyr. The crown of the martyr. Revelation 2.10 Jesus said, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, so that you will be tested. But you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Be faithful until death. Faithfulness to death. The crown of the martyr. I think there will be special crowns for those who have been martyred for Jesus. Those who physically and literally lay down their lives in heart-stopping surrender and absolute obedience to Jesus Christ. Does this mean, does this mean to get this crown I have to get killed for my faith? I thought about this quite a bit this afternoon and I think so. I think so. I think, gang, that Jesus also though calls us all to follow Him to the point of death, ultimately, absolutely dying to self. So the question is, can you say, I'll follow Jesus? Anywhere he goes, anywhere he leads me, even if it kills me, I'm going to do it his way. It's that working out of rebellion that we started talking about at the beginning. It's the worship that overshadows and pushes rebellion out of my heart. It's that servant nature that doesn't give rebellion a place to, to sink its feet. For sin to grow. It's driving it out as we follow the Lord, as we worship the Lord. Five crowns. The crown of righteousness, the crown of life, the crown of glory, the crown of the soul winner, the crown of the martyr. Now you might humbly say, I don't want a crown. I just want to be there. I don't have to have a crown. I don't need the Lord to give me. I just want to be in His presence. That's all I really want. No, you want a crown. Trust me. You want a crown. You don't want to be in heaven without a crown. Why? Because it will affect your worship. Look again at what happens here. The elders are falling before the throne and they worship Him and they cast their crowns before the throne. The point of the crown is not to look good atop the elder's head. The point of the crown is that they have something to give the Lord in worship. That's the point. So the very things that He gives us, these gifts that Jesus offers us, He says, I'm bringing my gifts. I'm going to give to every one of you according to what you've done, these wonderful gifts. And we will have these things to give the Lord as we worship the Lord to return to Him. That's why you want to care about the crowns. As other people are casting their crowns before the Lord, what will you be casting? 
What will be your gift of worship? And we'll finish with this. If I could tell you to do any one thing tonight with your life, it would be this. Worship God. Worship Him. It's the first and greatest purpose of all creation. Worthy are you, verse 11, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And Father, we do worship you. And we praise you. Lift up your name. And we will again and again and again. And Father, may it never be tiresome for us, but invigorating. Lord, may it never be difficult, but may it bring wondrous life and energy. May we understand something of worship on this side of heaven, so that when we reach that side of heaven, Lord, we can engage in all of the wonder and worship going on. Father, I pray that you will bless our hearts, especially as we worship you. And Lord, as you give us blessing, that we, like the elders, would turn around and hand that blessing back to you as our spiritual act of worship. That as you give us crowns, as you give us accolades of any kind, Lord, that these things would be of use to you and your kingdom and your purposes in our lives. God, bless this study. Write it on our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.